and welcome to A Bookshelf Binge. I'm your host, Jessica, and today I'm joined by USA Today, a best-selling author of the Dark Shore series, the Bridge Kingdom series, and the Malediction novels, Danielle L. Jensen. Thank you so much for being here. Well, thank you for having me. I'm so excited about this. So, Danielle, what was like the catalyst for publishing your first novel? How did you even start writing? Well, um, writing isn't my first career. I have a degree in finance and I worked in corporate finance for a long time. I wouldn't say that I loved it, but you know, not many people really love their jobs, which is a little sad, but true. But uh, I started writing because one of my coworkers uh, said, you know, we should write a romance novel. It wouldn't be that hard. They're just formula novels and which is not true. <laughs> I mean, yes, they follow a certain path, but they're not easy. <laughs> and uh, she said, we should do it together. But I am more of a do it myself sort of person. And so, you know, the idea kind of percolated in, in my brain. And I had always had stories in my head. I had just never really thought about writing them down. So I said, well, I'm just going to try. And I just started trying. And of course, my first efforts were terrible absolutely terrible. My first attempt was like this weird romance novel that was kind of, uh, I don't know, this lost knockoff. <laughs> and it was so bad with plane crashes and, and everything. And, you know, I shelved that, tried another one and, and just sort of kept working at it. And then I started writing the book that eventually became What is Dark Skies? And that was the first novel that I finished and right in around the time that I was finishing it the industry um hit a big recession for economic reasons and I got laid off and so I was at home and trying to decide what to do with my life because I didn't really want to go back to working in finance but you know I had to to do a job that would support me and so I said, you know, I, I could apply for all these jobs or I could really focus on writing. And I ended up going back to university to get an English degree and was writing and waitressing in a bar at night in order to pay my mortgage. And I just did all of that for a while and tried querying what was then called Trader's Plate. And it is very much changed, but since become um, Dark Skies. And it didn't pass the finish line. So I wrote another one, it got closer, wrote another one, and that was Stolen Songbird, which ended up being picked up by, by my agent after a round of revisions. And she sold that. My, so my first query ever went out in 2009. And I signed with Tamar in 2012, I think. So a lot of years of trying and failing and trying and failing. And then that book sold to uh, it, what was its then publisher and was published in 2014. So, and in that time, I had a whole bunch of jobs that were mostly just bill paying type jobs, waitressing, working in retail, working in inventory management, all that sort of stuff. Things that I could do 
that didn't, I didn't take home with me was the big thing. Because when you have a full-time career career, you take a lot of baggage home with you. And they also tend to be, you know, very time intensive and demanding. And so I didn't want to do anything like that because it would make it so much harder to write. Not that you can't, but, and then I had my kids and was done doing regular jobs because I'm in Canada and we actually do parental leaves. So I, I was able to take some time and I, and I was published up that point and, and not doing another job other than parenting. And after I had my second child was when I signed the deal with Audible for Bridge Kingdom, which gave me the opportunity to do it full time. So it was when I signed with Audible that I was able to financially become a full-time uh, author uh, and make enough uh, money at that point to not be destitute. <laughs> that's awesome. I love that's like such like a like success story that you have like all of these like starts and stops and it's just kind of really like inspiring. You know, the thing about writing is, is you do hear stories about people with their first novel that, you know, like have a twilight type path where they first novel wrote it as a hobby, got this amazing like huge deal, was an instant success. It, it does happen, but that is very rare. For the most part, people are doing it on the side and finding that their success grows over time with perseverance. So that's the majority, not the Stephanie Myers of the world for certain, so. I feel like it's such any type of artistic career you really have, like it's perseverance and it's not giving up and I could never do it. So I'm so impressed by everyone who can. <laughs> what is the process you go through for writing do you have like a specific way you do that do you mean the actual in a day when I sit down or how I come up with and let's do ideas? both uh so as far as ideas go I tend to as far as where they come from I don't know it comes from in the the mind space they an idea comes forth and lots of ideas come forth, but sometimes you latch on to one because it really interests you. And for me, I spend a ton of time thinking about this idea and the characters and it's usually the hook is what, what comes to me first. So the inciting event uh, in the Bridge Kingdom, it would be like the first chapter. Um, and uh, I think about it for a really long time and I build effectively a movie in my head that I roll through over and over again or certain scenes of a movie and it's only when it starts to become fairly concrete that I start to sit down and, and actually write it so I don't outline but I tend to have a really good inner outline I suppose you could say and have a really good concept of who I'm dealing with what the challenges are and some of the major uh, scenes and plot beats before I actually sit down. And I can think, I thought about Bridge Kingdom for years, years before I opened a file and started writing it. Because I feel, for me, I have to have that level of commitment to the story before I can extract it from my brain. As far as how I actually write on a day-to-day -day basis, I have uh, three dedicated childcare days a week. My youngest is in kindergarten or my eldest is in kindergarten. So she does do that. But uh, I have three full days where I have no kids to work. And then I do all of my other work 
in the, you know, when they're here or when they're in bed and that sort of stuff. Um, I just sit down and usually do the same thing that anyone does when they sit down for work. I screw around on the internet for a bit and check my social media and then, you know, maybe answer some emails and text messages. And then I open the file to where I was if I'm drafting and I start writing. Do you write linearly? Uh, usually, but not always. Sometimes if there's something I really want to write, I will just write it and it sort of floats in the Word document for a bit and then I'll catch up to it. When you do that though, it does usually mean by the time I get there that I have to do a fair number of changes in order to integrate it. But I do try and work mostly linearly. Uh, the exception was Tarnished Empire, which I wrote the first part. And then I knew the ending 25% or so, so well, and knew that that was exactly what I needed it to be. So I wrote it and then I, I backed into it in a way. So I wrote backwards in order to create the ending that I wanted, which is not how I would typically write. So, although I think I did a little bit of that too, actually with Trader Queen, because that was another one where the ending was so vivid that that I knew had to be that way. And I wanted everything else to feed into it. Mm -hmm. So it, it does depend a little bit on the particular book and what you want from it. Yeah, what what I how I am thinking about it, I suppose you can say. So in your lives, you've talked about how like Bridge Kingdom has an audible deal, mm -hmm. but you are publishing it kind of the indie style for the print copies. And your first series is now considered like an indie series because you're doing it yourself. Do you consider yourself an indie author, even though Dark Skies and Dark Shores were originally published traditionally? I'd say I'm a hybrid author. Uh, so Stolen Songbird, that series, the Malediction trilogy plus prequel were traditionally published first. Uh, I got the rights back to them. I requested the rights back uh, because I thought I could do more with them and I have. So, cause publishers, don't really focus necessarily on promoting their backlists so they can languish. Uh, and I thought there was an opportunity to put it in Kindle Unlimited and, you know, breathe new life into it. And it, it definitely has been doing a lot better since I've done that than it was in the last year. Although that series itself was extremely successful in its heyday. It's just old now. Dark Shores, of course, is with Tortine, the the three of the books anyway, the Tarnished Empire is in, purely indie. And then of course, Bridge Kingdom is a weird transaction in a way because, you know, people call it an indie title, but it actually went through all the same steps that Dark Shores did as far as acquisition. It's just that uh, Audible doesn't do the print and ebook. Uh, they only purchase the, the audio rights and then it's in my contract that there's a six month uh, exclusivity period where I can't publish before that. Um, so even calling it an indie title is a little misleading because I do have the support of the biggest audio producer in the world that is owned by Amazon. So 
it seems like a lie to claim that I'm doing it all indie because I do have a, a like they pay for all the editorial. The only thing that they don't do is the last proofing because they don't need to do that as a narrator is just reading it. So I always feel it's a little bit misleading to say, oh, my, all the success is just me because that's, that's not true. Uh, I have had help of a, of a major publisher. It's just that the actual production process of creating the books. So I, I consider myself a hybrid in the sense that I do a lot. And there's things that I like about both of them. And there's things that I really dislike about both of them. So I would love to continue to be a hybrid author so that I can have the best and worst of both worlds. <laughs> So you got the right backs for the rights back for your first series mm-hmm. and you thought you could do more for it, but how do you mean by doing that? Like, can you just kind of expand on it? So like listeners kind of understand what that means. Well, there's always trends and stuff in, in books and in, uh, and in covers and, and that sort of thing. So stolen songbirds cover original cover. If you, I don't have it hit with me, but um if you look at it, it was a, a product of a period of time, you know, like the face half chopped off. It was a trend, it was a, a, a cover trend that is no longer in style. So, you know, when you have people browsing through thumbnails on an online retailer, which would have been broadly where it was being discovered or seeing it in someone's Goodreads feed, the covers are not necessarily, they look dated and people don't tend to gravitate towards things that look dated. So, you know, a cover redesign was definitely something that I wanted. And the publisher probably would have done that if I, I pushed it. They didn't particularly want to let go of this, uh, this series. But I also knew a lot more about indie from my experience with Bridge Kingdom I would have had, as India had the opportunity to put it in Kindle Unlimited, uh, to reformat the interior. And then as soon as you are indie, you have the capacity to uh, run ads and to market in a way that you don't as a traditional author because you have all the data. So if I run an Amazon ad, I can't run Amazon ads on my traditional books. I can only run them on my uh, indie books. So because like that's a that's a huge way that indie authors are are, are selling is, is is via Amazon ads. So just being able to do that is is a huge thing. And then as far as using other platforms to advertise, with a traditional book, you're only getting sales data every six months. So it's not helpful. How am I supposed to know if a thing that I did today? resulted in sales when I can't see that granularity. So when you're indie, you can see all that data. You can tell if I do this, there my sales spike. I mean, with Bridge Kingdom, if I see a TikTok go viral, I can immediately look at real-time sales data coming in on Amazon and I can see beyond just a, a rank spike, which is obviously publicly available, I can see that impact. Now those sort of things are luck. You can't make them happen. But then I can also say, oh, if I put a major push on a, a Facebook ad and I'm dropping $200 a day, is this converting to sales? And you can't do that traditionally. So as an indie author, the 
not very exciting probably to readers uh, ability that you get is the data and ability to use ads and that's really important with a backlist title i think and also because i would no longer be giving up the lion's share of the profit of each sale of the book i had more disposable income being generated by the series to fund advertising so you know if you look at something like dark shores where for a hardcover sale i make maybe two dollars of what the read what the uh, reader pays the retailer you know that's not a lot of money to play with as far as advertising you can very quickly be spending more than you're making and sorry this is the business side of me no i find this so fascinating it's hard it's very hard and so then there's an expectation oh that the publisher will be doing the advertising because they're taking this big chunk but unless you're a really big title they don't and they especially don't tend to get into a lot of Amazon advertising or even social media paid advertising. You know, they'll do more things like book bubs and whatnot. So as an indie, you have all the risk, but you have all the profit. So you can take that profit and, you know, deploy it in, in more powerful ways. So that's why I thought that I thought I knew that I could do more because they weren't doing anything. So mm -hmm. doing more was not hard. And, I, and because all the revenue was coming to me other than what the retailer, what, what Amazon in this case is taking, Amazon takes, it depends on how you price your ebook, but they take uh, 30%, I think it is. So for indie titles, over $2.99, I believe. Over $2.99 and below $9.99, I think they get 30%. So you're getting 70% of what the, the customer pays. And that allows you to invest mm -hmm. because it is a business and and that's sometimes lost as is that you know people look at you as this creator of these worlds but as soon as you go indie and even to a certain extent when you are traditionally published you're you're running a small business did you option bridge kingdom as a more traditionally published novel or did you always want like the physical copies to be more indie no, we tried to sell it. Nobody wanted it. The, the print. Fascinating. I'm obsessed with it. Now that was, oh, when would that have been? 2018, I want to say. Yeah, something like that. So when I went to my agent, when I started writing it, I said, I'm writing this book. It's not really YA. It's not YA. It's not, but it's not also really in the adult market. I'm like, it is a new adult novel, which I realize is not really a thing beyond, um, it, it has become more of a thing, but it's a very in, indie dominated thing. So I don't know if you're even going to be able to sell this because it does not fit nicely into either uh, category as far as traditional publishing goes. And she said, well, you know, start writing it and we'll see because I can't, tell you until I've read it, whether or not I can sell it, <laughs> especially at, you know, at that point, because I wasn't, a, I mean, I was a bestseller at that point, but not in such a huge way where anything that I wrote was necessarily going to 
be bought. I mean, people always think that that's uh, a guarantee it's not. Um, so I was writing it and then she, she called me and she said, so I've been talking to Audible who is the producer of uh, the Malediction audiobooks. So I had an existing relationship. They said they're expanding their originals imprint, I guess you could call it, which is doing original content for audio only. And I was like, that, what the hell kind of crap is this? Who's only doing audio? This is, I'm like, I don't, I don't know. I'm like, I, I'll think about it. I'm like, and she's like, but they might, they, you know, just think about it. And I was at a convention and talking to Jennifer Estep and told her about this. And she said, you know, people are doing it. A lot of people are doing it. It's just not being announced yet. She's like, I think you should look into it. Interestingly, she now has a, a book with them. But so I went back to my agent and I said, well, what about this book that I've been working on? Because Audible has a ton of flexibility on marketing, because even if you look within Audible's various filters, there is an, a new adult space and they can move things very easily. You know, if they they actually did release Bridge Kingdom as YA and then we almost immediately moved it over to romance, which is where it, it took off. But they have a lot of flexibility that way. And I said, okay, well, why don't we send them what I have so far? And my editor there ended up acquiring it based on the uh, first seven chapters, I think where the last part she saw was, you know, when uh, Lara and Arn have their first encounter in the hot spring mm -hmm. and he throws the soap in the water and like walks away naked. <laughs> I'm pretty sure that's the end of what I sent her. And they made an offer for the, the duology based on that. And uh, yeah, so that's how that kind of came to, to be. I don't even know if I answered your question. What was the original question? I think we did. I think we got there. Yeah. <laughs> we were talking about the reasoning oh, that, that, that yeah. the French Kingdom was published. Like, the yeah. Movie says indie. And oh, and then, so we'd sold the audio rights and still had the print and ebooks. And at that point, I'd never done any indie publishing. And I was, I had really young children. I wasn't sure I really wanted to. And I and she said, well, we can try and sell the print and ebook to a publisher. Uh, the big thing was is at that point, certainly Big Five was not publishing or acquiring anything that they couldn't get the audio on, which obviously they couldn't. And this would have also had some, I guess, restrictions you could say. And yeah, no, nobody, nobody was interested. And then even Amazon, which probably would have had the flexibility when they publish for their imprints, they all have to be Kindle firsts, which it couldn't be because it was going to be audio first. So uh, yeah, nobody wanted it. So it was either I did it or it didn't happen. And so fortunately, uh, Elise Kova is one of my best friends who is obviously a master of indie publishing. She and helped me through the process of making it happen. And definitely had a lot of hiccups along the way as I learned it because there's tons and tons of things that I'd never done before but um yeah it was yeah it was me or no one for for the print so fortunately it's worked out really well that I did it but so yeah. fortunate one of my favorite series well thank you he's like obsessed it's fine um for those of you who don't know Danielle also does just the most 
and she runs her own Etsy shop. So at her Etsy shop, you can get signed book plates, signed and personalized copies of her books, both in hardback and paperback. Some fun art prints of the characters, like my favorite are the Bridge Kingdom prints, obviously, which were designed by Dominic Wesson. So is this just something that you think indie authors should just do in general? Or like what made you want to take on the extra workload of running an Etsy shop? <laughs> it actually is a ton of work. So it was COVID. I couldn't, I couldn't do signings. I couldn't travel. There was literally no way for me to uh, easily get signed books into reader hands. And people kept asking me, you know, if I PayPal you the money, can you sign a copy and send it to me? And I was like, you know, there's tons of, there's tax things. Like, unless like, this is, there's import laws and I am actually a business. So no. And then Olivia, I was talking to Olivia Wildenstein and she had an Etsy and she's like, well, you should do it. And I said, oh, but like tax and it's probably hard. It's like, it's not hard. It's not hard. It's a lot of work, but it's not hard. And so I just looked into it and I said, oh, nobody's gonna, nobody's gonna want to pay the shipping to get a book for me in Canada to the United States because it is painful. Yeah. It turns out a few people are, are willing to pay to get, have me scribble on their book, but that's how it started. And I just started small with a few, few things. And, um, and now it's a lot bigger. I mean, as far as whether you as an indie should do it, I mean, you don't have to, but it's a good way to capitalize upon merchandising. I, although I will caveat that, that when you are selling merchandise that you must have the right to sell the art that you are selling. So um, with the instance of Dominique's work, I have a specific contract with her that says this art is mine to do with as I will. And I do that type of contract generally with all artists is, is that I usually pay more so that I own it, which means I can sell it on in prints or use it in a variety of different ways. Whereas if you just license a contract or license a cover, you can only use it for uh, the book cover, which is limiting. So you can't just sell art prints of your cover if you don't have the right contracts. That's uh, copyright theft or, you know, it's copyright laws that you would be violating. So you have to be careful about that. But um, so you can capitalize upon all this merchandise op opportunity because people do like, I guess, the legitimacy of purchasing things that I've been involved with creating and, you know, have blessed. So, you know, there, there's a lot of opportunity there. And then of course, you know, you make money off of you're the retailer. So you're Amazon's not taking a cut. So as far as yes, I would make more per sale off of Etsy than I would off of a retailer because I get all, all of it except for the print cost. So it's profitable, but I am of course handicapped by the shipping. So if you're in the United States, you can ship a book for a few bucks, I think it with media mail. And shipping a book for me is like $20 Canadian. So, and then to the United States and then overseas, obviously it's even worse. So 
yeah, there's a ton of opportunity there. It's a ton of work though. The sign, like signing and boxing, going to the post office, uh, you know, and you have to keep on top of it because this is people's money. And then you have to deal with problems and messages and inquiries and all that sort of stuff. So it is, it is time consuming. And it's not, for me, it's not a huge um, percentage of my, my business, my income, but I do know authors in the United States who uh, either via Etsy or another type of online online platform like WooCommerce are uh, have made direct sales a huge part of their business. So you can do it. And the other thing that you can do, and that I'm actually I haven't announced it yet, but it's not really a big secret, is I'm going to be doing my own exclusive additions to my Etsy shop. So I'm going to start out with Tarnished Empire just because it's conveniently, I don't have any copies right now because it's really expensive to uh, print in the United States and ship to me and even to print locally. But for hardcovers, it's just, there's no, there's no, uh, there's no way to make that profitable, honestly, unless you buy so many thousands of copies that Oof. your basement would be full. So I can do the same thing that book boxes do myself. And that is to create an exclusive edition, order however many hundreds of copies in boxes for my basement and then sell them on Etsy. And I'm gonna do that just to make what you're getting for all of that. It doesn't, it's, it's no more, it's more, I suppose more, most, more time consuming because I have to arrange all that. And there's upfront costs because you have to buy a lot of books at first, but it doesn't really cost me anymore. So I feel like I can give more value to people who are paying all this money and shipping by creating a product that they can't buy on Amazon is the really long explanation for why I'm doing <laughs> it. So for Tarnished Empire, there's gonna be a new cover and a new embossed design and a slightly different interior layout. And I'll be announcing that all when it's, it's ready, but um, I'm excited to see how it goes. And if it works out, then it's something that I would consider doing for Bridge Kingdom, just because it is my, my most popular one. I still have a large stock of paperbacks that I got to sell first before I'm going to add to my boxes and boxes in my basement. So, yeah. I am loving this for everyone who like can't see me aka everyone I'm just so excited right now and Danielle's just gonna take all of my money <laughs> you know the the thing about publishing is and I'm, I'm sure there's people who are here to be like hearing tidbits about my characters and I'm talking like all the business stuff which you might not be interested in we'll talk about other stuff later is there's so many opportunities within the publishing world to make an income or to supplement your income or to diversify your income if you're willing to look into them and when you're willing to learn about them and invest your time. So it's not simply limited, certainly not limited to getting a traditional publishing deal and your stream of income directly just coming from, you know, hardcover sales or whatever. There's so many different things. And I, I know tons of people who are doing things that I haven't even wouldn't even do but haven't even touched on uh as far as uh support for the various parts of writing and production and you know people who do cover design people who do interior layouts you know there's ways to uh ensure that all your eggs are not financially in one basket which is important because you know you can have a hit 
and it's a hit for a couple of years, and then all of a sudden there's it's not a hit anymore and your income entirely dries up. And you know, that's hard for people, especially if you have a family and you know they're relying upon you to support them. So diversification of income is really important, says the finance person who also writes books. <laughs> the business side of this is so interesting to me because it's not what you see. You see these authors who talk about their characters and, you talk, and they talk about these worlds that they build. And as someone who like dives into worlds, like I really do appreciate that, but you don't see the business side. You don't really hear about the business side. And I feel like so many aspiring authors just kind of go into it very blindly. So like oh, yeah. having these discussions out there, I find so interesting and so helpful. I know a lot of people have a, are uncomfortable talking about the business or talking about the financial aspects or un, they're uncomfortable about talking about writing and books as a business because they feel that will be off-putting to readers and maybe it is but it's also fairly integral to who I am so if all you want is my books then just read my books but as far as interacting with me you're probably going to get a little bit more of the the real talk I guess we'll say on how on how it happens because it's, it's a hard it's a hard business it is so in case it wasn't abundantly clear, I'm obsessed with Danielle's work. My friend, who's also funnily enough named Danielle, who's at the New Adult Book Club on Instagram, who everyone heard in episode two of the podcast, introduced me to it when she would not stop talking about the British Kingdom. So I inevitably picked it up and subsequently fell in love. And I'm pretty sure I just like flood your DM just always with posts about your series. That's okay. <laughs> How does it feel when fans slide into your DMs? Do you like kind of ignore it or are you really excited to interact with them? How does that feel as an author? Um, I'm certainly not annoyed. I am happy that because it's a, it's a sign that people love your work for the most part. Sometimes you get some assholes and I can talk about that too. I think when that really started happening, of course, it's very exciting because it has been happening because it happens to me on a daily basis and has been for a really long time. Exciting isn't really the word for it anymore. And no longer now do I see, oh, a DM notification. I, I gotta go check right away. You know, it, it's not that way after a while, like anything, the luster, you know, diminishes slightly. And also because I always have DM notifications. So my, my phone does not bing. If my phone, if I allowed my phone to bing every time I got tagged or mentioned on or liked on Instagram, it would just blow my battery out <laughs> very quickly. And most authors are that way, honestly. Not that we don't like to be tagged, but I don't want the binging. <laughs> so, I, I mean, I like it. And it's nice because you can control when you engage. I mean, if I'm having a crappy day and I just don't feel like, or I'm too busy and I don't feel like answering, I don't have to per se, but I do like in the morning when I'm first get up and I'm drinking my coffee, I, I, I like to go in. And then usually after my kids go to bed and I'm winding down, I, I like talking to people. And there's some people that I've become certainly very close with that I met via DMs on Instagram. So I like it. It has become 
the scope of it has become a challenge just because I do get so many messages. And so I would say that my willingness to have long conversations within DMs has diminished by necessity because if I had those types of conversations with everyone who messaged me in a given day, I would never do anything else. It would be a full, it would be a full-time job. So my responses now are more, a lot more thank yous and sharing of posts versus larger scale engagement. And that is, it's not that I don't like doing that. It's just, I can't, I can't do it with everyone anymore. It's just too much. So yeah, I, I like it, but it is, it is a lot sometimes. You are very active on social media, which like I very much love. And like, I love watching does, but does Bookstagram ever influence your writing? Like you kind of mentioned the assholes who just are inevitably exist, unfortunately. But like, yeah, see, so like I have someone who, who, who filters things. So I uh, do get tagged in a lot of crap. And it's hard to, um, when it's been such a positive experience and then you start to see the dark side of it of people tagging you and, you know, the majority of what I'm tagged in is very positive, obviously. Most people are normal <laughs> and nice. But there's people who are either ignorant or callous or just don't think that I'm going to look or whatever that were tagging me in things. And it's not that I don't, it's not that I let bad reviews overwhelm me, but when it's put in your face in a moment when you don't expect it, it can really be, it can really sour your mood. And when you're a human being who is like living and functioning in a life with kids, you know, you're sitting there playing with your kids and all of a sudden you look at a tag and it's a person saying how much they hated your book. And, you know, your kids are climbing your legs and you're trying not to feel super sad and to kind of carry on. And so I, I do have a person an assistant who sees things before I, I look at them because it was getting to be overwhelming and a lot of authors have that. So, uh, because it's just, you know, if it's every one, every few months, that's fine. But when it starts to become more frequent than that, it can, it can take its toll on your mental health. So for me, it was a very good choice to have somebody who goes through all those tags and untags me from things that are malicious. So how do you handle critique? Even if it's just in reviews or like out just even outside of bookstagram? Uh like from my editors like or from, from readers. The reviews on Amazon and all of that. Is it something that you pretty much ignore because like you're doing your thing and you love it and you're very like into it <laughs> and you have like a great following or like are uh, negative reviews no, or something? I don't know. I don't ignore it. Um, when I have a new title out, I read them all, every review. And then it gets to a point where I stop because I have seen, I will at a certain point, you know, 
what generally speaking the things that people are liking and the things that they are disliking and it is very unlikely at a certain point that anyone is going to write something groundbreaking in a review Uh so yes i read them and i read them when i'm in a certain mood and when i'm not going to be required to be a captain of positivity because the shitty thing is, is, is that you can have 50 five-star reviews telling you, saying how much people liked the book and then one one-star review. And it's the one one-star review that's, that, you know, sits with you. Mm-hmm. And you start to think a little bit that all the other people are just being nice or they're wrong. And then the the critics are the ones who are seeing the truth. And that can really get up in your psyche. And certainly with experience, I've got a lot of books out, I've thousands and thousands of reviews. So I'm better equipped to handle it than I was when I first started. I look at it, I do look at it to see my success is dependent on how my readers react to my books to ignore the one place where I can really see what's working and not working to me is a bad way to run a a business. So I do look, I can't change the book that's written. So there is that, that's hard, but I can say, okay, these are the things that are people are continuing to like. These are the things that a lot of people are not liking. Maybe I don't do that again, or at least if I do it, I go into it knowing. So on a broad scale, yeah, I look at them to, to understand how readers are reacting to my work, but I have to look at them as a whole and look for trends within reviews because the criticism of one individual is not meaningful. So I am people who- blown away that you read every critique. I would not Ever. be able to do that. And like, we'll talk like maybe the first 50 to a hundred reviews. I still would not. I'm so impressed. I'm so impressed with your mental fortitude <laughs> for that. <laughs> oh yeah. If, you, if you've written a shitty review, I probably read it. Um, if it's something, if you wrote it, like when a book first came out, so take that for what it's worth. I mean, I'm, I'm like, I'm, you're allowed to write a review saying that you did not like this book uh, for whatever reasons. That's fine. I, I, I don't care about that. I'm not, I'm not this in this delusional world where all these people are going to uh, think that every, every person is going to love my book. That's just not how it happens. So you go into it knowing there's going to be people who dislike it. But there's people who can dislike a book and say so. And then there's people who are nasty. And it's because the nastiness gets interest. You know, if you write a scathing one-star review, it gets a lot of likes. It gets a lot of engagement. You get all the people who people, and when people dislike something, they, they like to have their reasons for disliking it validated. So they seek out these types of reviews in order to validate their own views, which is something that you see a lot less with people who like stuff. It's just a human behavior. And so, you know, they rise to the top and you can see why people get into this mentality of, oh, my negative content posts or reviews are so engaged with. They're so 
well liked, you know, they're, they, they get me so many followers. And so they start doing it more and more and more, but then all you're doing is promoting something that you hate, or I guess you can look at it as, is that you're trying to bring down something that you, you hate. And I have experienced it and seen it where people have not liked a book and they almost that I've been tacked and people, you know, that person will dislike this book or um, it, it happened a lot with warrior, Witch. that people were going and trying to dissuade people from buying starting the series. And that is an incredibly hard to see. It's very personal. I'm like, you know, this is how I feed my children you know, dislike the book and write your bad review, but why are you personally trying to, for no real reason other than the fact that you dislike it, trying to bring it down? And that that's a rare thing, but the focus on the negativity, it is all part of that same beast that we see on all social media platforms. And uh, that, it can be hard, really hard. And there's a, it's rare to find an author who has not um, experienced that and, and that isn't impacted by that. That's, people suck. <laughs> but most people don't. And that's most the thing is, is that most people are decent, good human beings who don't participate in that kind of crap. What's a major lesson that you've learned between publishing your first novel and your most recent, which is Gilded Serpent, I believe. Yep. I'm like, is it? <laughs> yes, yes. <laughs> I own all of them and I had to be like, which one was it? <laughs> Probably not to be a lot of publishers to push me around. Um, it, at the beginning, I, I just said, yes. Oh, okay, that's what they, you know, and even if I did, didn't agree. Uh, and there's a lot, and I have a lot of regrets for things that published decisions that publishers made that I didn't agree with at the time. And that had consequences, but um, they are not your boss. They are your business partner and you are equals. And so you are providing uh, the investment, not just of your intellectual property, which is your book. You are often investing your own money into that product that they're creating and you're investing your time into promoting it just as they're investing their money and time. You were partners, they are not your boss. And uh, that is something that I wished I'd learned. The thing that you have to watch is, is, is that they do like authors who are accommodating of just doing what they want them to do. And so, you know, you can get a reputation as a squeaky wheel, but it's your business and you're the talent and you can do it yourself if you want, you don't need them. So they need to be bringing value to the table in this partnership. Otherwise, what is the point in working with them? And if they are starting to seem like they're not a value add, then why would you continue working with them beyond your existing contract? So Yes, this glorification of publishers as this all-powerful entity within the relationship, uh, I don't agree with. And I wish I had had more knowledge about that when I first started. And then it probably makes me more difficult to work with. But 
I like to think that it, we both benefit by having more success as a result of my my insight because I've been doing this for a long time and I and I I know what works for my books and my readership. So that has value. So to tie into that, we kind of talked about the new adult genre and you've mentioned that this new series that you're working on will be only marketed as new adult. Is there- It will be adult in the adult category, but marketed, yes, as new adult. Is there a benefit of letting a publisher like do it as young adult? Like, I feel like, would the, is there usually like a big push for a new adult to be categorized as young adult? Definitely, yeah. I mean, everyone knows the books that are in YA that are getting huge push, you know, the next A Court of Thorn, Thorn of Roses that are, the characters might be, we might be told that they're 17 or 18, but, they're not and the books are not why they're not YA they're just they're intended for a more mature more mature audience we know them all if you're on bookstagram you know what books are being published as YA that are not YA or they're new adult and they're being published as YA and lots of times they're big lead titles, you know, because I think publishers all want, would love that Sarah J Mass success, you know, that they're, they're hunting for that. And it's very frustrating that there doesn't seem to be any interest in trying to create that type of success in the adult space. And that's very frustrating to me because I feel that I don't want to say corrupted, but in a way, young adult has been taken over by adult readers who like to read that style of book to the disservice of younger readers. And so I feel that if publishers would invest in some of these titles and allow them to be the, you know, adult novels that they are, that we would see less of that happening which I think would be a good thing, but it's hard, you know, as an author, especially if you don't have any interest in going indie and they say, oh, we love this book, but we want it to publish it as YA. We're going to give you half a million dollar advance if you do this, if you make the changes that we need. And if you let us market it here, like, how do you say no, that, no to that? That's hard, right? Whereas, you know, then you might have an adult publisher who's like, oh yeah, well, we, we could publish it. Here's your $15,000 advance, you know, money talks and, on, and, and it's not just the money, you know, you, you, if you're a lead title, then you get everything that goes along with it. All that marketing, all that support, all the best covers, the best of everything. If you have a small deal, you don't get that. And so it's almost like you're signing yourself up for your book to fail unless the readership latches onto it and launches it, which can happen. So that's why it happens. And I think on the publisher level that they have to be willing to do what they do for these books when they're 
pushed into YA in the adult space. I mean, I don't understand why they don't. You know, there's this, oh, reader, you readers won't be able to find it. But <laughs> you know, you like take something like um from Blood Nash, which is published by a micro publisher, really, but is almost is independently published effectively in the sense that uh, it, the books are printed by Amazon. The readership had no problems finding it, despite the fact it wasn't marketed as YA. You know, look at how successful that is to say that readers cannot find these types of books just because they are marketed in the adult space is insulting to readers and saying that they're too stupid to be able to find the types of books that they want or that they'll be confused by the fact that they're not in the YA category or whatever. I think it's just ridiculous, especially when you see indie authors doing so successfully. Like if you look at like a Scar Scarlet St. Clair who has done so well with her uh, A Touch of Darkness series, it's adult, new adult, one could argue in the sense of the age of the characters and, the, and some of the themes and the style but, you know, tens of thousands of thousands of readers are finding her books without trouble. So why do publishers think that just because they're traditionally published, that's going to be any different? It's just lunacy to me. But everybody talks about it behind the scenes. And we're starting to talk a lot about it not behind the scenes because, you know, people say to me, why, why would you not obviously go publish your next book traditionally? Like, don't they see how well Bridge Kingdom has done? Won't they be compelled to want to have you? And the answer is probably not. So we'll see. I mean, I might look out, things might change. Someone just might really go for it with uh, another title for me, but I'm not holding my breath because I haven't seen it happen for anyone else, I guess is the long and short of it. Fascinating. I find all of this so interesting. <laughs> so you mentioned all these, like, like you mentioned a touch of darkness and you mentioned from blood and ash. And I feel like bookstagram really like helped launch them and was really like an interesting catalyst for a lot of that. Does bookstagram influence how you write or like the covers or does it influence anything about this process for you? Yeah, yeah. There are certain types of books that Bookstagram will launch. And if you want to capitalize upon that marketing machine, you have to, it's not one type of book. There are different types and different niches within Bookstagram. But if that, if you want to make a hardcore Bookstagram play or a TikTok play or Facebook play, you do need to look at what is popular. And with Bookstagram and TikTok, especially, it's a very visual. So yeah, cover is important. I don't write for them. I, I write what I wanna write, but I am aware of what is working for other people. So, you know, if I see something really taking off, I look at why, I read the book, I look at the cover, I see what they're doing. Why is this working? What, what about this besides luck is working? Because it's very rarely just luck. So 
yes, it's call it market research, I guess. So, you, you know, you do want to look at what other people are doing that you're, especially if it's something that you're not doing. Uh, like if I were to choose a cover right now for the Bridge Kingdom, I would probably do something more like uh, what those two books have, the more, you know, black with things rather than people and highly text focused, I guess you could say, because it does seem to be on trend. But, you know, trends on covers change. You can't always hop on every wagon. So, yeah. Fair. What is something about being an author that you've expected to be easy, but turned out to be much harder than you expected? Uh, marketing and how much of it I would do, even as a trout author. You know, you think that you write this book and that then just readers will come and get it. But the finding, finding, keeping, maintaining is uh, almost a full-time job. And so it's, yeah, it's really hard, I find. I like, find it interesting, but it is a lot of work. So, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I can only imagine, only imagine. Do you find writing like kind of energizes you or do you find it like it takes a lot out of you? When it's going well, it energizes me. <laughs> <laughs> No, I mean, I enjoy it. I really like it, but it's just like anything, you know, sometimes the words are flowing. It feels good. That's awesome. And then sometimes you're staring at the computer and you've written three paragraphs over the past two hours and you hate them all, or your editor has raised an issue and you don't know how to fix it. And you're just frustrated. So even though I love it, I love writing and I don't want to ever do anything else. There are moments where it's very frustrating and I am not enjoying it. So it's both. So to tie into that, you've mentioned that Bridge Kingdom 3 is really frustrating you. And you talked about how like the editorial process can really help with that. How does that, how does like the editorial process look for you? Is it like your reader or your editor will look at it and like kind of provide like ideas or is it just help cleaning stuff up? Typically you get back an editorial letter. Well, you'll get back uh, the Word document with in-text comments on specific things. And then you'll get a pages long Word document where he or she will outline, uh, they, don't, they might start out with the things that they like, but they generally are talking about the things that aren't working and they, they talk about the things that are typically in an editorial letter, they are finding problems and they don't tend to offer solutions because that's your job, unless you need them to, or unless something seems very apparent and then they'll raise it. But they are not saying, this is the problem. This is how you have to change it. That's not how editorial works. So if you have a book and there's an aspect of it that you're, you've just, you've been fighting with it so long that it feels as though you've exhausted every possible solution and you're not coming up with it. Sometimes when an editor can look at it, they can pinpoint what is the specific problem 
and they can offer you su uh, suggestions how to, on how to change it. But sometimes them finding the crux of the problem is what it takes to nudge you in the right direction to, to fix it. Or you can be on the phone with them and talk about various options and solutions and it, it, it will just get you going down the right path. But it's never gonna be prescriptive in the sense that they tell you how to do it. But they can tip like, you know, when I went back with this last round of this book and I said, the middle is not working for me, still not working for me after a year. I, I need you to figure out what's going on here and help me fix it. Help me get going down the right path. Because at this point I've stare, I'm so frustrated by it that I can't find a solution. And so that's what an, an editor can do or a good beta reader can also do. So, but do you have a beta reader that you turn to? I do. Yeah. That's awesome. That's so interesting. Like as someone who has no aspirations to be a writer, because like I could never put words to page loving the series and not seeing all the hard parts that come from it, being stuck in a section, hearing you speak about that. I find really fascinating. <laughs> I mean, some books are easier to write than others. Some books, I wouldn't say they come out right on the first draft, but they just come out easily. And some books for whatever reason are really hard. And there's not necessarily any correlation between the quality of the final product because I had a horrible time with Gilded Serpent. Horrible time. Cried, that book made me cry. I just, oh. it's such a terrible try. It took me forever to write. I had to cut, cut so much, was so frustrated by it. And it's really highly rated by reviewers. So really loved, even lots of people say their favorite within the series. So, but it was infinitely harder than all the other books in the series to write. So it got there with the help of my editor who worked through it with me over and over again and with my beta reader and effort just effort so so you spoke about Gilded Serpent who's your favorite character and why is it Marcus <laughs> it's Marcus because <laughs> I really like uh so everybody has their own type just like in life you like certain types of care type of people so of course you like certain types of characters now just because you like a certain type of person in fiction does not necessarily mean that's the type of person that you would like in real life. Like, let's be real here. Half the people that we really love as characters, if you met them in real life, you'd be like, no thanks. <laughs> but um, I really like morally ambiguous characters with deep backstories that are, and their backstory is influencing the front story with lots of baggage and angst and secrets and I like them to be just you know horribly complex and you know they're going to do good things and they're going to do bad things that's what I like so Marcus is that Lara is that that's who I like so that's why I like will say that I'm team Marcus or that I like these types of characters but I'm also not going to write books with only those types of characters because that would be not good. So I do write characters who are not my favorite types of characters. 
that's just part of that's just how it is I guess you, part of creating a world <laughs> yeah everybody's different right so yeah I like those types of characters are easy for me to write and I think when as a reader you're probably going to see that I really like them because there's more detail put into their broader uh the broader character not just the character that the part of them that is directly impacting these events but who they were who they will become who like you know massive amounts of thought on family and growing up experience and all that sort of stuff you probably see in my writing that these types of characters are getting better treatment from me because I like them, I guess. So you play favorites. <laughs> I, do. I do. And um, then there's certain character types that are really hard for me to write. So the honorable going to make the right decision type character is hard for me. So a Killian is harder for me to write because I feel I have less liberty to go different directions. Mm. It doesn't mean I don't like him. It doesn't mean that I don't put a lot of effort into him, but he, he is harder for me. What inspired you to write a prequel for the Dark Shores, Dark Skies series? Agrippa. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Agrippa as a placeholder character has always existed. He's mentioned in Dark Shores, mm-hmm. not by name, but... Um, I knew that this character existed. I knew when he would broadly show up, but then when he, I started writing the book and he did show up, I was like, oh, now who are you? Because <laughs> he just took over. And then, you know, all, like the stuff, a lot of stuff that happens in the prequel, I knew about Marcus and was part of his backstory, but backstory is not a novel. Mm-hmm. A novel has to have a plot, even short novel. And so me just writing a story about, you know, the 37th doing certain things isn't good. Like it's not, I mean, it's like reading a nonfiction book practically, you know, like a a, a biography, I guess you could say. So when Agrippa came on, then all of a sudden I had a story, I had a character that I could build a story around and also bring in all this backstory and stuff that was going to, from Marcus's past, that was going to influence the front story in a more meaningful way than just Marcus saying, we were, when we first started out, we were under this legion that really sucked the Legatus, uh, well, the Legatus was, name was Hostus and he was an absolute asshole, you know? I can say it and he does allude to it in Gilded Serpents so that you know that when you meet this character that he is not good but when you met him in a story and he's been an antagonist all of a sudden him arriving again is so much more meaningful right Mm -hmm. so it's a way to bring in that depth of backstory but have it coming in around a actual plot, which is ultimately Agrippa being torn between, you know, 
two desires, I guess, and two loyalties. And, and then of course, having the romance there. So yeah, when Agrippa arrived and I just sort of got to know him, he, he created the opportunity to do so much and to just give depth. And so I wrote it very quickly. I wrote, I wrote that book in mm, less than six weeks. Wow. That's so, really short for me, really short for me. I'm not normally speedy. So you mentioned that you like had the ending that you wanted and you kind of backed into it for that one. Was it hard to like do a prequel? Like you've already built this world and you already kind of have steps in it. Was it hard to kind of make sure that a prequel aligned with that? Or was that like relatively simple since you've already created it? Yes, this is always a challenge is when you're right, when something else that you have written has created facts within the world that you must now work with them. Like certain things happen, certain people are the way they are, certain magic systems are the way they are. So you are stuck within that framework. And that is in a lot of ways why sequels are harder than the first book to write because you're writing within a framework that you've created and you cannot deviate without justification. So yes, it was challenging, but also because so much of it was new and not necessarily directly tied to the first two books. I, it wasn't onerous to have to stick with a certain, certain, um, framework, but, uh, it can be when there's more and more rules and facts that get in your way, I guess, <laughs> which is actually one of the things that I really struggled with the bridge kingdom three has been, it's easily, easily the number one challenge of that book is, is that it follows the same time frame as, uh, the trader queen exactly, basically there's overlapping events. So there's places that Karis and Zara have to be, and there's things that they have to do that weren't necessarily working for the pacing of the novel, but I can't change them because they're fact. And so working, finding ways to work around them has been the hardest challenge. So that, that's an instance where it, it is so difficult, but not so much with Tarnished Empire. What inspired you to have an overlapping book like that? Was it just because there were holes and you knew you wanted to talk about this relationship? <laughs> <sighs> well, I thought it was going to be such a great idea <laughs> and it wouldn't be this hard. <laughs> I mean, the, the thing is, is when I was writing, when I was writing The Trader Queen, I knew that I wanted to write a story about, very quickly on, I knew that I wanted to write a story about uh, Karis and Zara because you are seeing these glimpses of what is clearly a significant relationship between the characters, but they're hiding it, they're not talking. So you're only seeing what Aaron sees a little bit of what Lara sees and, uh, you know, 
I was sort of entranced by how, how this came to pass. How are these two characters who are heirs to mortal enemies, who are heirs to nations that have been at war for generations, how did this happen? And so um, the reason it has to overlap is because obviously how they met happened before we see them in the Trader Queen. So my hands were tied in the sense of the fact that it, it had to overlap. And so where the novel itself begins is um, with Karis and Zara. A couple of years if you are not read The Bridge Kingdom, but at the, the end of it when um, uh, Marjorie invades, we know that Karis was in The Bridge, right? Because it's said. So it's, it's starting there and you know, you're seeing some of that from his perspective and also some of it from Zara's perspective because she also was seeing this happening from the outside. And so that's where it started. And then, you know, the events move on to how they meet in Nerastas because, you know, she's the general there. He's been sent to basically become the prince that his father wants, the heir that his father wants him to be, but he has no interest in that as basically just like not. And, you know, how do they meet? Uh, how did they have a meeting of minds when they should want to, when they should hate each other and want to kill each other? How did Zara get captured? Uh, you know, all these questions build or build the plot and build the novel. And then, uh, you know, the, the, there's big chunks of the novel that I had free reign to create because they just were not really impacted by the events of Trader Queen to the same degree. But, but when you get over into when Zara is a prisoner at the same time as Aaron, and that's the middle, then I got, got a lot more of my hands tied. And also towards the end, because we know certain events happen. And so, yeah, working within that is hard. Never going to do it again. <laughs> <laughs> so book four will overlap with book five. <laughs> no, um, no, not in a meaningful way. No, mm -mm. too hard. It's too hard. <laughs> I'm calling mercy. And I think I do believe it will come together. I, I do at the heart of it, I do love the story. And for all that it has been a frustration, it's, it is coming together. But trying to keep the pacing and and to add in, because I also don't want, like, people are like, well, if we know what knows what, if we know what happens, because we've read The Traitor Queen, like, what exactly is the value out of reading this book? So you have to have all the excitement of, newness so you're finding new content like what were Karis and Zara doing while Aaron wasn't watching you can't have what he saw be the sum of what goes on because that's boring mm -hmm. you know so trying to build new content within that was is fun but also challenging because it has to fit it still has to fit so uh yeah it's it's easily the most structurally difficult novel I've ever written. Yeah. Fascinating. All right. I've taken up so much of your time. So I just have two last questions and I think okay. um, you are currently teasing a new novel. 
can you talk about it? Can you like share what it's all about and give me all of the spoilers? <laughs> all spoilers. I am. I'm writing a Viking, so Norse inspired fantasy romance, romantic fantasy as to which side of that coin it will end on. I'm not sure yet, but um, with magic and obviously Norse gods and lots of battles, lots of action, lots of heat and spice. Um, yeah, I, I, I won't, I won't tease too much about what it's actually about, but it's, it's not enemies to lovers, but it's forbidden love. Ooh, I'm sold. Um, yeah, forbidden love is my other. I, I do love enemies to lovers, obviously, because I write it a lot. But this is forbidden love. They're they're not enemies, but they are. Their love is very, very, very forbidden. So, um, yeah, I do love it. And the female character is doesn't have the same background as Lara, so she's not like this trained assassin, but she's definitely badass, and she is a is a warrior and becomes more of a warrior throughout and then the uh the main guy character is also obviously a, like a viking type warrior and um they both have their own separate magical gifts so uh i am really enjoying it it's about half done so i will be working on that until i get this next round of editorial back on bridge kingdom 3. So yeah. Do you have a timeline for this new one or because you're still just like in the early process, it will yeah, happen it, happens? Uh, it's hard because I have to fit it around um, contracted work, obviously. So it's basically second priority after Bridge Kingdom 3. So I'll work it around that. And so it, it honestly, it's going to depend on how much time I end up having to spend on Bridge Kingdom 3 as to when it's going to be done. But, and done is like, there's a blob that resembles a story. And then I will spend a lot of time self-editing and working with my beta and going back through it before it will be anything that goes anywhere. And as far as our plans for it, I mean, my agent will have to read it and all that sort of stuff. There's just, there's no way to really know yet what its fate will be it will be published in some form at some point but um yes that's what i'm working on so it has been nice it is nice to be in a new world uh it's nice to be working with magic again because uh, i haven't really worked with magic since uh my first series because even dark shores is not hmm. magic is not quite the term that i would use so uh and then bridge kingdom doesn't have magic so but like Bridge Kingdom, even though they have magical powers, they are very reliant upon their own physical strengths and mental strengths. So I don't really like magic being the solution to problems. Nothing annoys me quicker than when characters just get new magical gift after magical gift to solve every single problem because then you start to think, well, every problem is going to be easily solved because he or she will just get another power and they're so super powered, uh, you know? So I like more to the magic to, I especially like it when magic fails and they have to rely on their own human characteristics. So that's just how I write, but 
different people do different things, but there is magic. I'm so excited. I'm so excited. So my last question, which is a question I'd like to ask all my guests at the end is what books are you currently binging? I'm drafting. So I am not binging. I don't tend to read a lot when I'm in the throes of drafting, or I don't tend to read a lot of my favorite types of books, which would be like fantasy romance type books. So I'm not binging anything. I did read Ice Planet Barbarians. You did? (laughs) Because I had to understand what everyone was talking about at the very least, because how can I judge if I have not read? So I did, yes, TikTok made me do it. I read it. So that is the, my most recent read is Ice Planet Barbarians. Love that that's just going to live on in a podcast. <laughs> yeah. So there you go. Sometimes I, I read things that are not what I would normally read, but I always do that. I don't like it when people comment or like, or raining down upon a book that they haven't read. So, I mean, that's the reason why I read Fifty Shades of Grey. That's the reason why I read Twilight if people are talking about something, I feel that I cannot participate in the conversation if I do not have all the facts and having all the facts requires me reading. (laughs) And um, so I did. And I know, I now know at the very least what happens in this book that everyone is talking about that they have catapulted to the top of the bestseller lists on Amazon. (laughs) I know I'm informed. (laughs) All the more power to you because I ain't reading it. you're probably okay <laughs> it is really short I will say that it only took me like three hours to read <laughs> fair. well thank you so much for being on this is Danielle Jensen you can find her on Instagram at Danielle L Jensen and you can go on her website and see all of her novels or and find her Etsy shop and that's daniellelljensen.com I'm Jessica your host you can find me on Instagram at bookshelf binge be sure to rate a bookshelf binge on Apple Podcasts or wherever you're listening. Also, fun news, a bookshelf binge now has a Discord server. So join that and you can chat with all other listeners about who I should try and have come on the show, what books you want me to talk about, any businesses you want to hear from. And yeah, super exciting news. And I'll talk to you next week. Oh,